Wow, I can't believe we made it to our final and 52nd episode of 2018 for Dead to Rights, the podcast, titled Thrice the Brinded Cat. I have to say, at the risk of seeming immodest, this accomplishment makes me smile. 52 weeks, 52 episodes of Dead to Rights. A lot of work, no doubt about it, but also a tremendous pleasure. We've been thrilled to bring you the best of the best of today's authors, many of whom you are already aware, but also many who may be new to you. Most are award-winning and prolific, although some are only now breaking into the industry. To recap, this year we have spoken with, and it is a long list, so bear with me, Ted Carrick, Joan O'Callaghan, Madeline Harris Calway, known as M.H. Calway to her fans, Stephen M. Moore, Dorothy McIntosh, known as D.J. McIntosh, Anne Barton, Nate Henley, Diamond Wilson, Miriam Colbras, Kevin Thornton, Tony Rakestraw, Rob Brunette, Catherine Astolfo, Carl Bimshaws, John Rakestraw, Janet Kello, John Strother, Melody Campbell, Stephen Matelski, Junying Kirk, Judy Penn Shalluck, Russell Parkway, Cyrus Webb, Lisbeth Meredith, Michael Jacks, Jennifer Berg, D. Wilson, Denise to her friends, George Mercer, Jane Barnard, Perry Block, Iris Weichler, Jen Knox, Ed Pivowarczyk, Edith Maxwell, Mike Rubin, Michelle Cox, B.R. Statham, Kate Raphael, Joan Hicks Boone, Tina Wolfe, Nate Henley again, Carolyn Cohagen, Rachel Sparks, Allison Bruce, Joseph Glasner, Helen Burke, Karen Catcher, Rosemary McCracken, Marta Moran Bishop, E.C. Frey, known as Elizabeth Campbell Frey, Marilyn Kay, and now we close 2018 the way we opened it with my dear friend and fellow crime writer, Joan O'Callaghan. I want to take a moment before we head into 2019 to thank each of these wonderful authors for taking their time to share their creative journeys with us. It's our sincere hope that we've been able to connect each of these talents with new readers, with listeners who are delighted and inspired to learn more about their work. And with that, I'd like to bring back Joan O'Callaghan, author of Colors of Canada, Amazing Days, as well as nearly countless other works and stories, including the one I'm going to read to you today titled Thrice the Brinded Cat. Joan is a teacher's teacher, one of Oise's finest, recognized with the Golden Apple Award for Exceptional Teaching and Training Skills. Her passion is storytelling, but it is also a passion of hers to produce the cream of the crop of English teachers, the kind who will in turn inspire new writers, new storytellers. So please give me a heartfelt Dead to Rights welcome to Joan O'Callaghan. Hi, Joan. Welcome to the Dead to Rights studio. It's good to have you here. Well, thank you, Donna. As always, it's a pleasure to be here. The reason I wanted you to come in today is because I wanted to talk to you about the young adult genre. I don't know a great deal about that genre. I've never written towards it, 
but I know that it's becoming increasingly popular, uh, particularly among writers. Of course, the audience has never changed. It's always been young people in the teens and early 20s. But what can you tell me about the changes in the genre itself and changes that you've had to go through in, in flipping genres? Well, young adult is a very flexible genre. It, uh, it's not significantly difficult, or sorry, different from the uh, adult genres of literature, but there are certain things that are there and that are not there. The target audience can be anywhere from about 10 or 11 years of age to 17 or 18. So the level of sophistication is going to shift. Usually it involves young people. It involves young people who have some sort of a challenge and through meeting the challenge are able to grow or to learn some important life lessons. My shift to young adult came about as really a kind of an epiphany. When I started looking at the things that I had written, I realized that they all featured young people, either teenagers or people who were in their early 20s. And, and we've talked about yeah. this before. This, this stems back, I believe, to your career in teaching, doesn't it? Yes, it does, very much so. I spend a lot of time with young people. As a high school teacher, obviously, I spent a lot of my time immersed with uh, teenagers. And then as a teacher educator, the majority of my students are also very young. The majority of them are in their mid to, I'd say early to mid-20s, although occasionally I get some who are uh, a bit older than that. But even so, their focus is also on working with young people. That's right. So that's, that's right. So most of your material, one way or the other, the end user is going to be a young person. Yes. 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 So how did that change your approach to writing? Because you had written mysteries before, and uh, while they weren't particularly adult in nature, they also weren't young adult in nature. They, were, they could be quite serious content in the past. You're quite right, and that's one of the things that I discovered actually as a high school teacher, that some of the books that were considered young adult really were not. People had simply tagged them as young adult because they had children in them or teenagers. But the subject matter was, in fact, quite adult, quite sophisticated. So writing for a young adult audience, there are certain things that you do need to observe. Your subject matter, for one thing, there are some caveats. You need to be very conscious of things like explicit sex. Um, the use of obscenities, um, excessive violence, however you want to. And there must be ways to deal with those because there in are. a real world and in situations where young people find themselves facing some of today's challenges, you know, sex will be an issue and expletives will be an issue. So what are the workarounds that you use to make sure that they don't creep into the, the story itself? Well, you can certainly use references to sex. You just don't show it taking place. Yes. Uh, to quote one of my friends, you have the couple going into a bedroom and closing the door. And that basically tells you everything you need to know. So you're using the old standard fade to black. Exactly, exactly. Although talking to teenagers, they think that that's really quite hilarious because they're unfortunately students are being exposed, or children, young, young adults, teenagers are being exposed to sex much younger than certainly in our era. 
But it's not necessary to expose them in the literature. No, you don't need to be in their face about it. And so you, you get around it that way. You hint at it. You suggest at it. Into, rather than showing um, a knock-em-out, drag-em-out fist fight, you can have the, you know, one of the characters, one of these, these people who was in a fight, coming out uh, you know, describing a black eye or a bruise or, or you know, a cut or something like that, which suggests that violence has taken place. I hadn't even thought about violence, but you're absolutely right on that, that... Um, Graphic violence in many ways is, is more disturbing for young people than sex or expletives. Absolutely. So you, you work around it that way. The other thing you need to be conscious of is the length of what you're doing, the length of your book. Young adult novels are typically shorter than adult books, although the Harry Potter books um, would belie that. They're quite, <laughs> quite lengthy. the first Harry Potter book was shorter. Um, it was shorter, but the later ones are really quite lengthy. Mm -hmm. um, your sentence length is something you have to watch out for, and also the sophistication of the words that you're choosing. I think last time we talked, I think I made the point that sometimes when I'm writing, I'll get my writing critique group will say, Joan, kids wouldn't understand that word. Yes. And I'll, I'll have to pull back and realize that I've slipped into the other mode. Yes. So these are some of the things that you need to be conscious of. Typically, how many words would a young adult novel end up being? Oh, <laughs> that's a tough question because I'm not a good one for, for counting words. But I would say that you're probably, and um, I, I may stand corrected on this, Somewhere between maybe around 45,000 words. Okay, so really just above novella length. Yes, I okay. think that's, that's okay. pretty fair. Because if you say novella is really anything from, I, I'm going to guess here and throw out 8,500 to say 35,000 words, mm -hmm. in that range is generally considered novella length. Mm -hmm. So young adult would be just a bit more than that. Okay. I'm just trying to picture all the young adult novels that I have sitting on my bookshelf at the university. And who do you mm. have, and who do you <laughs> oh my like? God, I've got a, oh my God, I've got so many, um, and we have some very fine Canadians writing young adult. Um, who do I like? I like Carolyn Pignat quite a bit. She's one I discovered recently, and I really like her most recent book, Shooter. Um, I like, uh, well, of course, everybody likes Gordon Corman. He's another one, and he won last year's Arthur Ellis uh, Award for the Young Adult category. Uh, I'm very sorry that Nora McClintock has passed away. She was another great author of young adult literature. I like uh, some of the ones who've been around for a lot, you know, for a bit longer. I like Emmy Kerr. She's very good. Um, mm, Trying to picture some of the others. I know I've never never been a reader of young adult, at least not since I was in my teens. Um, when I was in my teens, I treasured every book I'd read. But my daughter got me hooked on the Hunger Games series. Oh, yes. I tore through that, and so did she. We had a race to the end. We had... A, um, we had to get it on Kindle so that we could both read it at the same time. We loved it that much. I absolutely adored the entire Harry Potter series. Now, I know those are just the most obvious commercial ones. That's why I really wanted to get your take on some others that I, I as not a young adult reader, may not have heard of. 
Well, I really like the genre. I started reading it when I was in the classroom, when I was working with non-academic students and trying to get them to read. And I found that this was one way to do it. And I always gave my students time to read in class. A lot of schools do this. We would set aside the first 10 minutes of the period for personal reading. And I would read with them. And this is when I would read young adult books because it was important for me, first of all, to be reading what the kids were reading. And also because students look to me for suggestions as to what they should read. And I needed to be in a position where I could recommend books. And then the third thing, and if you have kids, if you have children, if you have teenagers, I'm going to give myself a commercial message here. One of the most important things you can do is to read so that they can see you reading. It is so important for them yes. to see a significant adult in their life reading and enjoying reading. Absolutely. I, I agree fully. And uh, uh, one of the reasons that I, I love doing the short stories, we were talking about this a little earlier, is that I realized when my children were small, I read to them voraciously. And I just love reading stories. So I hope that that love of it comes through when I'm doing the stories. But it is so important for our children to see that we love books, to see that we love the art of literature, and I don't care what genre it is. I'm not even big on labeling things under genre. I think that um, most things these days cross genres anyway. But teaching them that reading is something to be enjoyed. It's not something to be imposed upon them. I'm thrilled when I see that my daughter loves to read. She starts and ends every day with reading. Oh, those are words to warm my heart. <laughs> and when we're listening back on this podcast, yes. I'll be jotting down the names that you threw out there and recommending them to her. Well, I actually, I'm just in the process now of looking at young adult novels with my own students, my own, and I, I train teachers um, for anybody who, who doesn't know. And um, I actually brought down to the classroom yesterday 53 young adult novels for my students to explore. So you caught me a little bit off guard there when you asked me about authors, but if you certainly are looking for some titles and some names to recommend, Donna, I'd be more than happy to get you a fuller list. I will take you up on that, definitely, because she loves to read and she's always looking for new material. Um, and now I want to ask you about your current work in progress, because I believe it is a young adult. So it's yes, it is. It is. It is. Well, I started playing around with the genre, oh, about a year or so ago. And I've come up with some characters, a, a group. There's um, at heart, we have a young girl, and she has a rather nerdy cousin, she has a couple of older brothers who are married, and she has a boyfriend and a couple of girlfriends, really a very typical grouping. And in this particular book that I'm writing, the working title is Bugs and Goblins, and it has a couple of different meanings. But for those of you to whom it sounds familiar, it comes from Hamlet. You might remember Hamlet saying at one point, such bugs and goblins in my life. I love that. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> but um, these kids are on a school trip. They're on their way to Austria. I chose Austria because I've been there, and also my late mother came from Austria. And uh, they're on the plane, and things start to happen. My character, Cindy, the girl, is there with her friends and a group of others. They're the school band, and they're going to play some concerts in this local town. 
And also on the plane is the school's ski trip, ski team. They're going to be uh, competing against other schools. And so they're going to the Austrian Alps to a little place that I have named Bergenspitz am Tiefensee, which in English translates into mountain peaks on a deep lake. <laughs> and yes, it is humorous. It's supposed to be humorous. And things start to happen on the plane. Cindy has an altercation with uh, another woman who seems to think that she's sitting in her seat, but she is not. And then once they get to the hotel, more things start to happen. So it sounds like what we would commonly today call gremlins. There are, well, let me just say, let me just throw out a broad hint here. There's a reason why the title has the word bugs in it. Okay, okay, well that sounds really intriguing. <laughs> and in fact, even though I'm not much of a reader of young adult, I'm definitely going to be reading it when it's ready. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, I'm delighted, Donna, and I'm really looking forward to getting it done. I have to be honest and tell you that I am having such a good time writing it. Good. I actually brought it into my class the other day and read part of it to my own students. And they, they, they enjoyed it. They, they did. Very good, much. good. Yes. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like a great setup. <laughs> I mean, you've definitely got the locale. You've got two different uh, groups, the nerds and the ski enthusiasts. Mm -hmm. So you've got a good mix of uh, characters, I would think, to really work their way into this. And now you know that you are on the hook for another tip. And this time I'm going to ask, what tip can you give to writers of young adult fiction? I would say that before you attempt writing young adult, you need to immerse yourself really in an environment with them. You need to listen to them, get a handle on what their priorities are, what are the things that concern them, listen to them talk, try and pick up their speech patterns. That's one of the things I'm dealing with. There are a couple of terms that I'm trying to um, you know, figure out what they say. I, one of the characters in the book is a teacher who's supervising the group, supervising the, the band. She's the band, uh, the, the school orchestra leader, the music teacher. Her name is Miss Barkwell. So I'm trying to get something doggy. I love the names. Yeah, so the character well, names are so important. Oh, I you, have, they you've are. got such a free reign to play with them. Oh, young I've got some fun ones, but I'm trying to come up with something. So I had the kids as a nickname. We're calling her Alpo. Which is well, for people yes. well for people of our generation, it everybody knows like Alpo was a dog food. Except when I asked my own students who were in the early twenties, most of them had never heard of it. Oh no. So they um, I said, Well, here's what I need. And they said, Well, go to the supermarket and walk and take a look in, in the dog food aisle and see what there is. So what was there? I don't know, because I always go to the cat food aisle. <laughs> So I have to, because I have so a So you cat. might have to name I her Miss Meows a lot. Yeah, I, yeah or yes, or, or, or whiskers, whiskers or something. Yeah, Miss Meow Mix. So I'll have to go and see what else I can find. But yeah, for kids always have funny names for their teachers. The, they the, do, yes. Yeah, the ski team coach is Binky Baxter. There's a reference to the math teacher whose name is Fuzzy Hinchbottom. Oh, and, you know, <laughs> I like that. Yeah. You really do have free reign. Oh, yes. That's terrific advice about really getting to know young people mm -hmm. and getting into their character and into their, their world, really. Because I think, in particular, young people are very sensitive to anyone trying to put words in their mouth. Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, you know, we all know teens. Let's just leave it there. We all yes. know teens, and they can be some of the harshest critics. So mm -hmm. you really do you know, want to know. Very much so. You want to get into their vernacular. 
Well, thank you very much, Joan. That's been wonderful, and it's been a real riot setting up here in the Dead to Right studio and talking with you. I've appreciated it greatly. Well, thank you, Donna. It's always a pleasure to be here, and um, I wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you for joining us, Joan. And now we bring you my reading of Thrice the Brinded Cat by Joan O'Callaghan, which first appeared in 13 o'clock by the May Dams of Mayhem, Carrick Publishing, 2015. Joan's stories have been published in EFD1, Starship Goodwords, Carrick Publishing, 2012, and the Crime Anthology, 13, Carrick Publishing, 2013. Her story, Runaway, took third prize in the National Boney Peach Short Story Contest and was published in World Enough and Crime, Carrick Publishing, 2014. Her flash fiction story, Torch Song for Two Voices, won first prize in a national competition and was subsequently published in That Golden Summer, Polar Expressions Publishing, 2014. Joan has an active career in freelance writing with over 30 educational publications to her credit. She is the author of three non-fiction books, two published by Scholastic Canada, and one by Rubicon Harcourt, as well as two e-short stories. And now, Thrice the Branded Cat. Thrice the Branded Cat Hath Mewed, from Macbeth, Act 4, Scene 1. A full moon again. The white light poured in through the small window. Anna tossed restlessly. She sat up and pushed her tangled, heavy black hair over her shoulders. With a start, she realized she was alone. Gudrun wasn't in the cottage. Gathering her nightdress around her, she opened the door and peered out, calling softly, Gudrun, Gudrun, where are you? As her eyes became accustomed to the play of moonlight and shadow, she saw the older woman, her fingers pressed to her lips, standing under a large oak tree. Anna ran silently to her, her feet damp from the heavy dew. What is it? Are you not well? Hush! Do you not sense it? Gudrun's lips moved almost soundlessly, and Anna had to strain to hear her. Gudrun shook her head. No good can come. She looked at Anna as if seeing her for the first time. Child, you'll catch your death. No wrap, nothing on your feet. Come, back to bed. Pay no attention to the musings of an old woman. Inside the cottage, Anna pulled tight the cords on her wooden frame bed and gathered the cloak that served as a coverlet around her. Soon she heard the even rhythm of Gudrun's breathing. The old woman was asleep, but sleep would not come to Anna. She lay awake staring at the thatched cottage roof, wondering what had wakened Gudrun and what she meant, what she had sensed. The morning dawned bright and sunny. Anna awoke to the sounds of Gudrun setting their simple breakfast on the table. She stepped outside to wash her face and hands in the brook that rippled through the woods around Gudrun's cottage. Ambrose, Gudrun's large black-and-white tomcat, perched above her in his favorite spot among the leaves of the oak, licking one white paw and watching her. Inside the cottage, Gudrun silently passed Anna's coarse black bread and cheese, 
and poured ale into two tankards. Anna waited, knowing the old woman would speak when she was ready. At last Gudrun stood abruptly and began clearing the table. Anna helped. Overhead, drying herbs swayed back and forth in the light summer breeze. There's trouble at the castle, Gudrun said. Anna knew better than to ask how she knew. Gudrun just knew things. And there will be trouble here. Prepare yourself, girl. Her voice dropped and she spoke as if to herself. In the meantime, we must go about our business. She nodded in the direction of a bunch of goldenrod hanging from a rafter. Your goldenrod is ready to be ground. Anna worked diligently all morning, grinding the goldenrod into a powder from which a drink could be brewed to relieve a stomach upset. Afterward, Gudrun sent her to a place downstream where osiers were long, thin branches sweeping the surface of the water were plentiful. The bark of the osier lowered fever and offered relief for pain. On her return, she caught sight of two horses outside the cottage. She stopped short, nearly dropping the basket of bark she carried. As she watched from the shadows cast by the tall trees, Richard, Lord Emery's chief steward, emerged from the cottage. Gudrun followed, carrying her healing satchel. Richard helped her onto the back of one of the horses, then swung himself up onto the other. Gudrun's horse was tethered to Richard's. Although Anna had made no sound, the older woman turned and gave a barely perceptible nod in Anna's direction. The village gossips said that Richard held power over the staff at the castle, that they feared him, and that he had gained Lord Emery's trust. Anna had no fondness for Richard. He leered at her whenever he saw her in the village, and she had seen Gudrun going out of her way to avoid him. Once the horses were out of sight, she packed her own healing satchel with fresh moss, the osier bark she had gathered, and various ground herbs in small woven pouches. As well, she packed some strips of dried meat. Then she slipped her long hooded black cloak over her shoulders, stuffing the pouch into one of the inside pockets Gudrun had sewn, and slid her feet into soft, tanned hide slippers. She made her way to the edge of the forest, staying in the safety of the trees until the sun dipped below the distant hills and the orange glow around Lord Emery's castle faded. Only then, wrapping her cloak around her and concealing her face and heavy dark hair in the hood, did she approach the castle. She circled the building, keeping to the shadows, looking for a way in. Guards were posted at the main entrances, and all the other gates were locked. It was dusk when two servants climbed the path to the castle. Anna followed at a safe distance. The servants entered through the sally port near the base of the tower, and, engrossed in their conversation, left it unbarred. She slipped into the castle and crept cautiously along a long hallway, dark except for occasional sconces, holding rushlights. Firelight flickered some distance ahead, and she heard the low murmur of voices. She stole forward, keeping to the wall until she could see and hear clearly. Richard, the steward who had come to fetch Gudrun, sat at table with two other men, both wearing Lord Emery's black and gold livery. 
Richard signaled to a servant to fill his tankard from a nearby firkin of ale. He quaffed the ale thirstily. With a satisfied belch, he slammed the tankard onto the table, wiping the froth from his mouth with the back of his hand. "'Did you fetch the witch, then?' one of his companions asked. "'I did. She attends his lordship even now.' "'And the calmly maid that dwells in the cottage with her, the apprentice?' With a start, Anna realized they were talking about her. She pulled her cloak more tightly about her and flattened herself against the wall. With a lewd gesture towards his crotch, he added, "'See where she has bewitched me already?' The men laughed loudly. Richard answered, The maid was nowhere to be found. When I questioned the witch, she said only that the maid had gone into the forest and did not know when she would return. We shall go to the cottage under cover of darkness and fetch her. Wait until the moon is risen, Richard said. You will catch her unawares. Anna shrank back further against the rough wall. She had to find Goodwin. Talk of witches meant trouble. It was whispered among the village folk that the older woman was a witch, but still they sought her out for medicines and salves. As a child, Anna had often been taunted by the village children, who called her witch's spawn. Although Goodwin told her to pay them no heed, she became adept from an early age at using her fists and her cunning to silence her tormentors. While she thought about what to do, a servant emerged from the room where the men drank and dined, carrying a tray with a covered platter. Hoping the servant might lead her to Goodwin, Anna followed at a safe distance. Once, she tripped over a loose stone in the floor. The servant turned, calling, Who goes here? Anna held her breath, her heart pounding. Her cloak and the shadows in the dark hallway concealed her from his eyes, and after a pause he turned and continued on his errand. Anna followed after him. At length he came to a door made of richly carved oak, with tapers burning brightly on either side. With one hand on the wall, Anna crept as close as she could. The servant shifted the heavy tray to one hand and knocked with the other. A guard opened the door. Anna saw that it was a richly appointed bedchamber. Embroidered tapestries lined the walls, a small fire burned in the hearth, and Lord Emrys lay on a large bed, Goodrun sitting next to him. Two more armed men stood behind her. Near the head of the bed were Lord Emrys's lady and his young son. Seated across from Goodrun was Brother John. Anna shuddered. The older woman raised her head and looked briefly past the guard in Anna's direction, her dark eyes flashing a warning. Leaving the tray, the servant stepped out of the bedchamber, and the door closed. He hurried past Anna and was swallowed by the shadows. Off to one side was a small alcove with a chair and a window. Anna sat down, thinking over what she had seen. Goodrun had been brought to the side of the ailing Lord Emrys, but... Richard's words and the presence of Brother John troubled her deeply. The sound of voices floated through the window. Taking care not to show her face, Anna peered into the darkness. The moon was up, and Richard's two drinking companions were waiting while a groom readied their horses. The men were unsteady on their feet. 
Their laughter was loud and their speech slurred. In her mind's eye, she saw them clearly as they rode away. Their coarse laughter assaulted her ears. She slowed and deepened her breathing, as Gudrun had taught her, closing her eyes and willing herself to be an invisible companion to the men on their wild gallop through the woods to Gudrun's cottage. In the dark, they did not see the fallen tree that lay across the path. The lead horse shied suddenly, throwing his rider. The horse bolted into the forest, leaving his rider lying still on the ground. His companion pulled up short. He dismounted and examined the falling man, rolling him over. There was no response from the fallen man. The servant climbed back on his horse and rode off. Anna opened her eyes and blinked. She hurried along the passages until she found the door under the window where she had stood listening. She ran out of the castle and along the path the horseman had followed until she came to the fallen rider. His breathing was shallow. By the light of the moon she saw that his face was pale and beaded with perspiration. After taking his short sword, a basilard from the scabbard at his waist, and a horn-handled hunting knife from his belt, she fetched some water from the nearby stream and forced it between his lips. He stirred, and his eyes flickered open. She went back to the stream and mixed a potion. He watched, fear in his eyes, but the injuries from his fall were such that he was helpless. He thrashed to and fro, pressing his lips tightly together so as not to drink. If you answer my questions, I will give you this to drink. You need not fear. It will only make you sleep, and when you wake, you will feel much better. And if I refuse, he gasped. She didn't answer. Millie ran her finger along the sharp edge of the basilard. Why has Lord Emrys sent for the healer? He tried to push away from her, but Anna grasped his hair firmly with one hand and held the point of the sword to his throat. I can kill you now. He closed his eyes. It's Richard who has brought the witch to the bedside of my lord. He says she practices the black arts. Then why bring her to his lordship? He's ill. If she cannot heal him, Brother John will say she caused his death and she'll hang for a witch. Why is Richard sure she cannot heal him? I know not, he gasped. Why are you here tonight? We came to fetch you, but I had an accident with my horse. To fetch me? To violate me, you mean? He shook his head. I never wished you harm. My companion, he gasped. You will not speak of our meeting tonight. Do you understand, she said? He nodded and drank the draft, then fell back. His eyes closed. A Valerian would ensure he slept for many hours. Anna slipped through the trees until she came to the cottage. The horse, still lathered, was tethered outside, so its rider must just have arrived. Looking around her, she noted a familiar gleam reflected in the moonlight in a nearby oak tree. She smiled and stood in the doorway until her would-be captor turned. Seeing her, he smirked and advanced. So, here you are, my pretty maid. He raised his arms and lunged at her. She turned as if to run from him. Something flew past her, hitting him on the head and knocking him to the ground. A terrible cry rent the air. My eyes, my eyes, I cannot see. 
he fell to the ground, his face covered in blackness, shrieking all the while. Reaching down, Anna gently lifted Ambrose, but not before the cat gave her attacker one last swipe with his sharp claws. The man's face and neck were a mess of bloody ribbons, his eyes swollen shut. He reached out, clutching at Anna's skirts. She took the basilide from under her cloak and slashed at him to loosen his grasp. He shrieked in anger and pain, letting go of her and rolling over. She stroked the cat's glossy coat and murmured her thanks. Leaving the servant on the ground, she rode his horse into the woods. There she dismounted and gave the beast a sharp slap on the rump, sending it galloping into the forest. The bright moonlight helped her find her way back to the sally port. She entered and, ensuring she was alone, drew the basil out and held it before her. She found the room where Richard and his companions earlier had plotted against her, deserted now except for the two manservants. They talked as they cleaned and dripped the pith of reeds and rushes in grease to be lit as torches. Anna recognized the servant who had brought food to the bedchamber where Lord Emrys lay. "'How fares his lordship?' the second man asked. The servant who had carried the tray shook his head. He grows weaker daily, nay, hourly. They say Richard has brought the witch to work her powers. Aye, Richard brings medicines from the witch to put in the lordship's food, but even so he sickens. Anna mauled over what she had heard. With Goodwin and her healing satchel by his side, why was Lord Emrys getting worse instead of better? What were they putting into his food? She waited until the servants had finished their work and departed. She wrapped herself in the long black cloak and found her way to the bedchamber, hoping to find Gudrun alone. The door to the bedchamber was closed. Remembering the presence of the guards, Anna hesitated, wondering how to alert Gudrun to her presence. As she pondered, the door opened and Gudrun placed a tray on the floor. Anna! "'What are you doing here?' Gudrun whispered. "'There is danger everywhere. "'Go now back to the cottage. "'I will come when I am able. "'Quickly, the guard sleeps, "'but he's sure to wake and must not find you here.' "'Anna shook her head. "'The cottage is no longer safe. "'Listen to me.' "'Quickly she told Gudrun what she'd learned "'from the injured horsemen and the servants. "'Gudrun's face grew pale in the candlelight.' After a moment, the old woman spoke. I have not given any medicines to be mixed into his lordship's food. You must find out what it is they are feeding him and tell me. Be very careful, Anna. Anna laid her cheek against Gudrun's for a moment, then gathered her cloak around her and was gone. The old woman was the closest thing to one mother Anna had ever known. Since finding her as an infant, abandoned on the doorstep of her cottage, Gudrun had raised Anna, caring for her and teaching her all she knew. The young maid proved herself a quick study, working hard so that she too could be a healer. Her skills were now almost equal to those of her mentor. Anna could not imagine life without her. Although she said nothing, it troubled her to see Gudrun aging, her gray hair, her face lined, her step hesitant. She had vowed to care for Gudrun in her old age, as Gudrun had cared for her. 
The first pale fingers of light probing the recesses and passages of the castle alerted her that dawn was at hand. She made her way back to the room from which the servant had brought the tray for Lord Emrys and waited in a recess in the wall just outside the door. Before long, the servant arrived, stifled a yawn and threw peat on the fire. Richard swept into the room and handed him a small pouch. The witch bids you mix this medicine into his lordship's ale. The servant placed the pouch on a table, then disappeared into the adjoining scullery. Once Richard was out of sight, Anna crept into the room and seized the pouch. Quickly, she examined the powder as Gudrun had taught her, dipping her finger into the powder and placing a small amount on the end of her tongue. It was spicy and bitter. Foxglove! She put the pouch back on the table. Richard was poisoning Lord Emrys. If he continued to ingest the foxglove, he would die and Gudrun's life would be forfeit. She looked around the room, then seized the firkin of ale and hid behind the scullery door. Soon after, the servant returned and set about preparing a meal of bread and cheese and rashers of bacon. He was occupied with his task and did not notice Anna creeping up behind him. He turned at a slight sound, but too late. Anna brought the firkin down on his head and he slumped to the floor. She tied the pouch to the girdle of her dress, wrapped her cloak around her. Seizing the breakfast tray, she moved quickly through the passages until she came to the bedchamber. She set the tray down and knocked. The guard who opened the door barred the way. Where is Francis? Why has he not brought his lordship's breakfast? Prithee, sir, Anna adopted a tremulous voice. Francis has fallen and injured himself. I am bidden to bring the tray in his stead. The guard nodded and stepped out of the way. The room was empty except for Lord Imrus, who slept fitfully, and Gudrun. Anna set the heavy tray down and caught Gudrun's eye. Her mouth formed the word foxglove. Gudrun gave a barely perceptible nod. Anna was confident that Gudrun would prevent Lord Emrys ingesting any more of the poison and would use her arts to restore his strength. Should she tell Brother John of the steward's plot? The Dominicans saw witchcraft everywhere, and Brother John had a particular hatred of women who practiced the healing arts. She sighed. There would be no help from that quarter. Keeping her head bowed, she hurried back to the room and peered in past the open door. Richard breakfasted alone and was in a foul mood. The man Anna had hit with the firkin was nowhere to be seen. Richard hurled his tankard across the room. It bounced against the wall and clattered to the floor, barely missing the servant bringing food to the table. Two of my men missing. The young maid is nowhere to be found, and the witch has not stirred from his lordship's bedchamber. Yet I see her hand everywhere. He rose from the table and stormed out. Anna drew back into the shadows, but not quickly enough. Richard saw the swirl of her cloak and stopped. What have we here? The young sorceress herself. He grasped her firmly and drew her into the room, pulling her cloak from her in one fluid motion and hurling it onto the floor. Anna stood silently, defying him. His dark, angry eyes roved over her. Spotting the pouch of foxglove at her belt, he seized it. How came you by this? 
I gave it to my servant only this morning. A knife and a basilard. What business has a maid with a sword? He tossed the weapons to one side and circled Anna. Now I know what happened to my men. Too bad such a fetching wench must hang with the hag. He drew a length of cord from a pocket and tied her hands. He called for a servant and thrust Anna forward contemptuously, tossing her cloak after her. Lock her up. Grasping Anna's arms firmly, the servant marched her to a small room and shoved her inside, pulling the heavy door shut. She heard a key turn in the lock. From a slit in the stonework that served as a window, she could see daisies dotting an open field, their white heads dancing in the summer breeze. Anna wiped a tear from her eye, envying the flowers their freedom. After a short while, she heard voices in the passageway. Where are you taking me? It was Gudrun. There was a creak as the door swung open and then slammed shut. Knowing that Gudrun must be imprisoned close by, Anna waited until she was sure the guards had gone, then put her mouth to the slit and called softly, Gudrun, Gudrun. She was rewarded by a harsh whisper, Anna, did I not bid you flee this place? We have to get out. If Lord Emrys dies, they will hang both of us for witches. Their conversation was interrupted by the rattling of a key in the door of Anna's cell. The guard brought in a tray of bread, cheese, and ale and set it on the floor, then turned to leave. Wait, Anna called, holding her bound hands in front of her. I cannot eat or drink like this. He hesitated, then removed his hunting knife from its sheath and cut her bonds. He locked the door again and left. A moment later, she heard the door to Goodwin's cell open and close. Anna pushed aside her cloak with her foot, and as she did so, felt something firmer than the soft fabric. Her healing satchel. She quickly opened the bag and examined the contents until she found what she wanted. There was still enough valerian left. She mixed a strong measure into the ale, then sat down to wait for the guard to fetch the tray. When he entered the chamber, she smiled at him. I cannot drink ale. I'm too distressed. Can you bring me a little water, please? and dropped her eyes. The guard turned on his heel, leaving the tray and locked the door, but soon after returned with the water. Water for you, witch. She held out the ale to him. Please, good ale should not go to waste. As she had hoped, he grasped the tankard and downed the ale thirstily, wiping his mouth on his sleeve. Bending down to pick up the tray with the untouched food on it, he passed his hand over his eyes and tottered to the wall, placing both hands against it for balance. Anna watched silently. A moment later, he fell unconscious to the floor as the Valerian did its work. With luck, she and Gudrun would be long gone by the time he woke. She scrambled over to him, searching his clothing until she found the ring of keys. Pushing open the door, she peered both ways down the hallway. Nobody in sight. She tried all the keys until she found the one that opened Gudrun's cell. Quickly, Gudrun! The women crept down the passage, keeping to the shadows. At length they came to a narrow stairwell that led down another hallway. Anna nodded to Gudrun and began to descend. As Gudrun followed, she placed her foot on the first step, dislodging a bone lying there. It fell to the stone floor below, rousing one of the dogs that roamed the castle. Anna drew a strip of dried meat from her satchel and tossed it in the direction of the barking. 
The noise ceased, but not before Richard rushed into the passage carrying a lit torch. He immediately spotted them on the stairs above him. A slow smile crept across his face as he withdrew his own basilard from its scabbard. So, you found a way out. No matter, I will kill you here. He began to mount the stairs. Anna felt Gudrun tense behind her. She backed up against Gudrun, forcing the older woman to move onto the step behind her. The steward sneered. He took his time advancing, knowing the women were trapped and at his mercy. He lifted his sword and ran his finger along its sharp edge. This is what happens to witches, especially witches who meddle in what does not concern them. We are not witches, Gudrun spoke up. We want only to heal the sick and relieve their misery. You are witches and will be blamed for his lordship's death. He climbed onto the next step. There was nowhere for them to go. If they turned to climb the steps, hampered as they were by their long skirts, Richard would stab them in the back. Then a movement on the lower level caught Anna's attention. Intent on his prey, Richard did not notice that the dog had returned, looking for more dried meat. Cautiously, she moved her foot until she felt a loose stone. Giving it a nudge, she sent it hurling over the edge. It hit the floor below with a sharp crack, causing the dog to erupt into a loud barking and snarling. The din caught Richard off guard. Startled, he turned his head in the direction of the sound. The distraction was all Anna needed. Pulling her skirt back, she raised her leg and lashed out with her foot, catching Richard on the chin. He lost his balance and tumbled backward off the stairs. He twisted as he fell, shrieking, and landed on his own sword. Anna ran down the stairs and knelt beside him. Steward, you have conspired against your master and sought to kill my friend and teacher, and me. Say your prayers now, if you have any. He worked his mouth, but no words. Only angry red spittle emerged. At last he gasped. With his lordship dead and you blamed, I would have ruled the boy and found favor with the Dominicans. So close, so close. His eyes rolled, his breathing grew shallower, and then stopped altogether. She turned to Gudrun. Let us go. Some days later, the two women made their way through the forest. Gudrun's heart was heavy and her steps slow. We escaped from the death Richard planned for us, and we saved the life of Lord Emrys. But it has been for naught. Brother John called us out for witches, and his lordship has banished us. Anna shifted the basket in which Ambrose slept to her other hand. We are banished instead of hanged. We live, and for that we must rejoice. We will make a new home far from this place and continue our work. She turned one last time and beheld the flames leaping and dancing, high in the air, consuming what was left of their little cottage. Our thanks go out to Joan O'Callaghan for this wonderful story and for her precious friendship. Are you a published author? Would you like to be featured on our weekly Dead to Rights podcast? We're scheduling now for slots in 2019. Please contact me at carrickpublishing at rogers.com and be sure to say Dead to Rights interview in the subject line. We'll look forward to hearing from you. Likewise, if you have any questions about books or the book business or the writing craft for any of our featured authors, don't hesitate to get in touch with me. Same email address, carrickpublishing at rogers.com. 
You'll find us on Facebook under Dead to Rights or under our Carrick Publishing Facebook page. You can also find our personal pages, Donna Carrick and Alex Carrick. On Twitter, we're listed as at Dead to Rights Pod, at Carrick Pub, at Donna underscore Carrick, and at Alex underscore Carrick. All music featured on Dead to Rights, including our theme song, Eyes of Gold, is original material composed and performed by Ted Carrick. Look for his work on YouTube at Ted Carrick Music. We wish you a very happy new year with love and warm wishes. See you next week.